the planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan. There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man. And until you thoroughly tested every last close-tested view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Where would we be without THC? The higher side chats show. Rick Carl Wood and Company. Yes, people, from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And with everyone so charged up and firmly rooted in their camps, we are in an era where it's hard to look at anything honestly and without triggering some knee-jerk emotional response. And even if you're willing to do that, parsing through the multi-layered psyops and honing in on the unadulterated truth is harder still. Every major event and news story seems to be a labyrinth of lies and misdirection, where peeling off each new layer can alter your outlook until you feel like you're in some demented funhouse hall of distorted mirrors. Well, much of what we've experienced lately, from the last presidential election and the January 6th thing to the COVID op, the shot, and the Ukraine conflict, revolve around the idea of perception management and making sure it's really hard to tell how isolated our radical opinions really are. The TV talking heads are all reading the same script, dissenting opinions are throttled online, critical experts have been outright banned from the discourse, waves of sock puppet accounts regurgitate the exact same message, and fictitious polls make it seem like everyone's on board but you. Well, today's guest, Brooke Hines, knows this all too well and has actually been on the inside of a few left-leaning strategy meetings about these very things. And she's been courageous enough to write about them in depth and just how uncomfortable these things made her feel. And that's on top of having a transient ischemic attack after her first Moderna dose and feeling the full weight of the COVID shot PR machine when she tried to be honest about it. As for the rest of her career, she's an award-winning advertising creative with 25 years experience crafting communication strategy for clients ranging from financial services and commercial real estate firms to candidates for office. She's the executive producer for the Progressive News Network, occasional writer at the Florida Squeeze, former alt-weekly publisher, and the brains behind a pretty killer substack. So let's get into it. Breaking from the herd in more ways than one, the communication strategy expert, establishment critic, and magically savvy substacker. Brooke, welcome to the higher side. Wow, thank you. That is such a, I'm humbled by that introduction. <laughs> thank you. I try. And I'm really looking forward to this. You have some super important insights from a long career in crafting mass messaging and strategizing for campaigns. So when things are, crossing all sorts of ethical lines and going completely off the rails, you would know. And when I reached out about doing this, I was pleasantly surprised to know you've actually listened to this show and you're a fan of people like Jimmy Dore, who I also think is doing a ton of great work. One of my favorite things about the few THC live shows I've done with Sam Tripoli is that Jimmy Dore was on one. But I've got to ask you about being the executive producer of the Progressive News Network and doing a podcast called Lefty Lounge these have almost become toxic words to segments of this audience. You're very critical of the left because we tend to know our own kind best. And I'm not trying to fan the flames of left versus right, but 
Do you find it difficult to stay associated with words like progressive when a lot of the ops we experience in the present seem to be coming from under that banner? Oh, my gosh. It's almost as if you reached into my soul and pulled out the struggle that I'm working with the most. And (laughs) as a matter of fact, going from Progressive News Network to the Lefty Lounge was an intentional move because I wanted to get rid of the word progressive because I didn't like being associated with that anymore. Mm -hmm. And what I saw my work doing was more of bringing a left perspective to kind of a broader range of topics because I'm, I'm really not that interested in politics a hundred percent of the time. I'm interested in the world as it is. And now I'm in the midst of retooling that into something broader that I'm going to call hindsight, which uh, I want to drop the political affiliation entirely. I'll always come from a, you know, an old school kind of left perspective, but I really see, I see the same thing you do. And I'm afraid that the party that I grew up with is right now in the midst of what I would call state crimes against democracy. I think that they're involved in good old SCAD, good old conspiracy, old school conspiracy against the way that our political world should work. In other words, one of the things that I noticed in in my work with the left is that the funded left, the left that gets money, the people who are paid to do stuff, they're not often happy with just doing things straight down the line. Often it has to involve some sort of dark arts and it has to involve some winning with skullduggery rather than just straight up winning. Mm -hmm. And that really made me uncomfortable. And I've also seen that eliminate some really good candidates for office who deserved a better hearing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's fair to say. It's been a long time since I interviewed anyone who would even halfway identify as left, but the only thing worse than two parties is one party. So we can't just write off half of the political spectrum as lost. And, you know, I kind of do a similar thing, trying to defend conspiracy culture from attack and mischaracterization, call out the bad actors and sort of hold that ground, even when it's being weaponized and propagandized heavily, which seems a little bit like a parallel to how you feel. And good luck to both of us, I guess. It's getting a lot harder to do these days. Absolutely. Everything is being couched as war and no one's going to win. No one's going to win this war. The way that I believe, the old school way that I believe that we make progress is through dialogue and working together. And, you know, right now, what's on the table and what people are trying to do is win a war. And I don't want to be at war with, like, let's say my in-laws or people that I grew up with in Satellite Beach or people that I went to school with in East Tennessee. I've known and loved people of all political stripes my whole life. And you know, when all of this started with Trump and you were supposed to just like cut people out of your life, I was like, nope, Hmm. that is a hard stop for me. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And 
I also mentioned your vaccine injury in the intro there. That happened after the first Moderna shot, I understand. Clearly, we were lied to about the risks, but can you tell us a little bit more about what happened to you and also the sort of backlash you faced for just being honest about what happened? Yeah, so thanks for asking because I think there's a lot of important stuff that people ought to know. And the first thing is about the transient ischemic attack itself. So I had that 19 days after I got the shot. And I'd been sick, like bedridden sick for 10 days after the shot. And I thought that that's all I was going to get is just a really bad flu, chills, fever, that sort of thing. And then on the 19th day, it was August 15th, 2021, all of a sudden I felt great. I had a bit of a headache, but I get migraines, so I just took a Maxol, what I usually do. And as the day wore on, I started feeling like super great. And then in the evening, I felt euphoric. Like, weird. <laughs> I don't even know how to explain it other than euphoric. Like, it almost felt like I was like super, super high or just had the best thing just happened to me. It was irrational. It was irrationally euphoric. And so I went, me and my husband were going to walk the dogs. They hadn't been out for a while because it rains here a lot in the summer. So first nice night, we're taking the dogs out and I put on my glasses and I noticed that I can't really see around the edges. So I had this tunnel vision and I, because I was euphoric, I just sort of wrote it off as that's just my glasses being dirty. And so I got the leashes, I got the dogs on the leashes, walked them out. And my husband says to me, you're listing to port, which is a way that he says that someone is walking crooked. Hmm. <laughs> His mother used to say, you're listing to port. Like if you drank too much and you're kind of walking at a 45 degree <laughs> angle away from the bar. Been there. And I'm like, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and I was like, I went to say, Something like, oh, come on, you're imagining things. And it came out, oh, come on, you're imagining things. <laughs> like I was totally drunk, God. which because I was feeling euphoric, just uh, kind of amused me. And I was like, I, you know, let's just walk. I can't wait to walk. So it took us about a half mile getting away from the house. We have a little pond that we walk to that I call the DMZ for the dogs, and they can kind of run around over there. As soon as we got to the DMZ, I lost the feeling in the left side of my body completely, oh. from my foot and my leg all the way up to my shoulder. And then that's when I finally made the connection that this is the signs of stroke, because it's supposed to spell like F-A-S-T, and it was the thing about losing the feeling on half of my body that finally made it all come together. And I know that people can feel euphoric when they have a stroke. That was you know, something I was looking for in my um, parents and grandparents when they were getting older. And boy, you know, when it happens to you, you're just like, wow, this is awesome. You know, <laughs> I mean, what a way to go if you were to go that way. <laughs> leaving this plane completely just like, woohoo, let's go. So that scared the hell out of both of us. And I went to my doctor. I made a, immediately made an appointment. I wasn't going to go to the ER with that stuff. I just laid down and 
monitored what was going on and it didn't get worse. I didn't, you know, like it started to get better within an hour or so. So we decided not to go to the ER, but made in a, made a doctor's appointment immediately. And I got blown off by neurologist. My personal doctor totally understood what happened. And she said, well, you've likely had enough immunity from the first shot anyway. So don't even worry about the second one. Mm. And I try to take it easy with her because I don't want to get my doctor in trouble with things having to do with COVID. I realize what a hot subject it is. And I really love her and she's a great doctor. So, you know, I just tread very lightly. And I ended up going to the hospital a couple of days later because the headache didn't go away and it moved down my neck and into my back. And I was worried. And I swear to God, the hospital treated me like a leper. It was, uh, it was terrible. I shouldn't have done it. They kept me there for 24 hours. Oh yeah. My blood pressure was like 200 over like 180, just ridiculously high. And you know, I wasn't trying to push onto them that this was vaccine related. I was just like, look, empirically, here's what's happening to me. Can I get an MRI? Can I see a neurologist? And can we figure this out? And so I got an MRI. I didn't have a bleed. I didn't have anything that the radiologist could identify as a stroke stroke. And so they diagnosed the whole thing which is the same as what they did with Jimmy Dore as occipital neuropathy. And that neuropathy has not gone away. So it's up and down my arms. It's in my hands. I have days when I can't write with a pen, you know, because the neuropathy and tremors are so bad. So there's just a lot of things to kind of look out for that, that I think people should know about. I believe the euphoria has to do with where the attack is within the hemispheres of your brain. So if it's on the right side versus the left side, you're going to have different kinds of feelings. And I remember one of these TED Talks where somebody who was a neurologist who had a stroke and she started having it on her treadmill and she recognized it through the euphoria. It was the exact same situation with me because I didn't have insurance until my mid-30s. I'm very sensitive to the fact that a lot of people just can't go to a doctor. And COVID scared the hell out of me because people are going to need to go to the doctor in a pandemic and we don't have people who have health coverage. So I was very interested in early treatments to keep people away from having to go to the doctor. So I followed FLCCC you know, Pierre Corey and, and those guys really closely. And um, Peter McCullough and, mm -hmm. yeah. and Dr. Bean, Dr. Mo Bean doing his nightly physiology and cell biology lectures. And, you know, just tried to learn as much as I could about how you keep yourself healthy without going to a doctor. And so I got a legit prescription for ivermectin. And have been taking that, there's a protocol for vaccine injury that involves a lot of the same protocol that you would use for COVID. And ivermectin's part of that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's a freaking miracle drug. It just, 
the neuropathy that's up and down my arms and through my neck when I take ivermectin, it just melts away. It's crazy. And another thing I've been trying is methylene blue, which is also just wow. I mean, I'm not giving anybody medical advice, but you know, my own experience is there are some things there that have worked for me with the vaccine injury. And the ivermectin also works as a prophylactic. So I've gone this whole time during the pandemic because I was treating my vaccine injury with ivermectin and the FLCCC protocols. I didn't get COVID once. I was managing a political campaign for a lot of this and, you know, in tight little rooms with a ton of people and never picked anything up. So I feel really good about that approach. And so when all of this kind of started and ivermectin kind of came on the scene, you know, this was after hydroxychloroquine had been summarily dismissed, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a shame because that's another cheap drug that totally works and that you need to have in your toolbox. I was, you know, sharing these thoughts with my lefty friends and saying, you know, look, this is a way to kind of hack the medical system. If you've got early treatments that you can just pull out of your medicine cabinet, why wouldn't you? And think about the people who are actually most likely to come in contact with the virus are the frontline workers who are, you know, lower wage, like the people I always see at the gas station, the people who are working in fast food, retail people who are doing face-to-face stuff. So I saw that as a big material class issue. And so I was very vocal about it and started losing friends through that. But then when I had the vaccine injury, holy moly, I had no idea how I would be attacked. Now, I know that a lot of people who had been on the burning left had created this group called anti-vax hunters and and they were which is just sounds so stupid and they were actively going out and trying to what's the word like troll that's it yeah trying to troll people who you know said anything that fell outside of what they thought was okay and these are people that i knew and they would get in my dms and yell at me about one time it was yelling at me about natural immunity like you don't believe in that shit do you oh sorry i don't know if i can say that oh no swear you can say okay fuck shit hell damn the whole range (laughs) well hot damn (laughs) (laughs) and and you know i was like how do you think a vaccine works a vaccine works because it's augmenting your your natural immunity if you didn't have natural immunity, vaccines went, it was just, I felt like I was talking to people who had never had a biology class ever in their life and that it was absolutely hopeless to try and have a reasonable conversation with them. And then I just realized, you know what, they're just being propaganda bots, mm-hmm. essentially. And it just, you know, it's just like, this isn't worth my time. I'm not going to argue with people. I mean, I will share information and camaraderie with anybody who is, you know, kind of on my wavelength, but I'm not going to go out there and fight people or troll people or it's just not in my personality to do that. And so 
This former friend of mine, Tina Desiree Berg, who works at Status Coup now, I'd responded to Graham Elwood on something having to do with the vaccine. And Graham Elwood targets me, like pulls me out, you know, for like all of this like silly abuse for talking about my vaccine injury because his thing was like, well, you're going to make people vaccine hesitant. So you're not allowed to actually talk about this. And also, so what if you had a, a vaccine injury, like that's an acceptable loss. We got it. Easy for him to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, if it had been his vaccine injury, I'm sure he would have had a different thought about it. And so that kind of blew up. And Max Blumenthal mentioned it to Jimmy Dore on a live stream. And then Dore brought Graham Elwood, who was his friend, you know, like they had done the show for years. It was always Dore and Elwood and Placone. So here comes Elwood. They've got all these bad feelings between them. And he brings them on to talk about this. And they missed a couple of really important points that I really wish had gotten in there. Because me and Jimmy both have pre-existing conditions. And Graham Elwood, part of his argument was that, well, you shouldn't talk about your vaccine injury if you have pre-existing conditions because you should just accept that something bad would happen. And I think the opposite of that is the case. I think that there should have been guidance for people with autoimmune and people who already had, like my pre-existing condition is ME, CFS, myalgic encephalomyelitis, commonly called chronic fatigue syndrome, but it comes along with fibromyalgia. It's fun as hell. Mm. So it's pain and fatigue, essentially. But it's also because your immune system is dysregulated. Right, right. So I felt like, you know, doctors should have had some kind of heads up for us immune funky people. You know, some of us overreact, our immune systems overreact, which I think is what mine did. And some people, they underreact. And so I think that this is how Jimmy's injury and my injury are very similar. I wish that I had had the opportunity to appear when he was talking to Elwood, but I understand why he didn't, because I think that his relationship with Elwood is just very tender right now. (laughs) Sure, sure. As are a lot of relationships, especially on the left between people who saw through aspects of this or experienced negative consequences and those who just didn't. And they hadn't had to confront the worldview because they didn't have any injuries in their own life. So, you know, you really were kind of put between a rock and a hard place. And I don't want to spend too much time on COVID because there's a lot of COVID fatigue Mm -hmm. out there with people, but I wanted to hear the story of what happened to you. But as someone who's familiar with this show, I've talked to a lot of people that got me thinking about medical propaganda, maybe going back way, way further than we realize. And I'm not even sure I trust what makes us sick anymore. And all kinds of things have been tossed in the I don't know bin. Same. For me, because like, it's just crazy. And it's all built on itself. And, uh, you know, I just virology, the whole thing, I'm not so sure about anymore. But it just seems clear now that like, 
You know, we have to reverse engineer. Why would you get the shot? Well, you'd get the shot because you're told there's this really, really scary, life-threatening thing out there. But then the data is like, well, 99.8% survival rate. You know, we have to justify the things we're taking into our lives. And I don't think if you look back at it, it can really, it's really justifiable. But of course, this is all part of the big machines campaign, which really that's kind of the crux of what we're going to get into is this template that is used and applied to many different things, many different situations that we're going through right now from Ukraine to COVID and, and everything in between. And to get into this, I wanted to jump over to your post, Neoliberals Glamping in Death Valley, because this is where you actually experience strategy meetings for a lot of the things we're talking about. As you put it to me, it's the intersection of all the lies we've been told, and I was able to be in the right place at the right time to get a glimpse behind the curtain. Weapons of mass destruction, Russiagate, Ukraine, COVID. They all use celebrities to push the message in pursuit of what's called informational hygiene. And as this article itself says, it's not your imagination that since 2016 or so, social media suddenly became flooded with various demi-celebrities swanning to share their surprisingly uniform thoughts. Trump is bad. Democrats will save us. Medicare for all is racist. Those who offered counterexamples were enthusiastically piled on by armies of low follower accounts before the screen actor flounced off to their next commercial or Hallmark movie. We've all endured the exhausting pontifications, provocations, and should you disagree, hard blocks of the likes of Alyssa Milano, Rob Reiner, Patty Arquette, Deborah Messing, and Sarah Silverman. Where did all this come from? Well, that is well said. Those are certainly some of the usual suspects that come to my mind when thinking about this stuff. And it came from meetings like this one in the desert. Talk to us about some of the disturbing things you heard about and experienced there. So this is the weirdest thing I've ever been asked to attend. <laughs> For a brief while, I was the communications chair for the state Democratic Progressive Caucus, which is attached to the party, which was something I didn't quite understand at the time, is that they're never going to go against anything the party says, right? You know, even though they call themselves progressives. But I had to kind of learn this lesson on my own. And this is really where it got hammered home. So the president asked me to go attend this weirdo, what would you even call this, conference out in Death Valley in March of 2017, right after the inauguration of Donald Trump. And the whole premise of the thing was that the Russians are taking over the United States and they're using left dialogue to do it. They're infiltrating our specifically infiltrating our electronic devices, which includes, they talked about that the Russians were able to listen to you by your Fitbits <laughs> <laughs> or by the microphone on your camera, you know, even if your camera is not like a phone and just all of this paranoid, silly stuff. Now, this was like the 17th of March, right after the inauguration. And I'd been, because I'd followed the whole mess with CrowdStrike and Russiagate since the very beginning. And I think that that's ground zero for the Democratic Party's 
most serious crimes against democracy. And so I wanted to see behind the curtain. And I was like, yes, I will go to this. I will absolutely go to this. And so this was a bunch of Daily Co's people who were bringing together influencers and activists from around the country. And they wanted us to meet in Death Valley because there was no electronic surveillance. It would get you away from electronic surveillance, which I thought was just, oh my God, get over yourself. You know, like, like really? <laughs> you, you think that this, is, this would be worth the Russians listening in on? Right. Really laying the paranoia on thick. Yes, yes. And it took me a while to realize that what they were actually doing was, it was like a live action role play or something. Like they wanted us to take on this paranoia and then go back to where we were from, you know, with this newly inculcated paranoia and spread it around. That's what the whole thing really boiled down to. But on the way to learning that a little bit, there was one strategic, we did a lot of strategy meetings, but there was one strategic meeting in particular that was so informative. We were breaking out into groups. And so it, broke out as media, logistics, field, that kind of stuff that you would have in a campaign. And I always go over to the media communications part of anything like that. And it was just me and one Daily Co's person and then somebody observing us. Oh, yeah. And then a, a girl from Jacksonville who was, you know, kind of oddly and nicely on my side. It was weird, but I really appreciated her. So we were having this conversation about media strategy now that Donald Trump is in office and the Daily Kos person just announces to me, you know, and just to the group that they already have it figured out. The media strategy is to use celebrities to use their social media accounts to launch messaging to launch the propaganda, catapult the propaganda into the public's mind, and that there wasn't any other media strategy beyond that, like <laughs> nothing having to do with talking to reporters or publishing, which is what Daily Co's, I thought, did was publishing. No, they were just going to use celebrities, and they said specifically they were very interested in young celebrities which I feel like, you know, like, like people who don't know exactly what's going on, you know, that'll just unquestionably like take your, your messaging and go play with it out in, out in the real world. And that's exactly what they meant. And so I pushed back as I might do from time to time. And I said, you know, we all have this like group meeting after our sessions. And I said, you know, that's not really a media strategy. That's a social media strategy and it's fine as a social media strategy. And I'm glad that you've got access to all these celebrities willing to launch your messaging. However, are we missing something? You know, I was just trying to make a tiny little point. Are we missing something if we ignore media entirely on its own? And the response that I got to that was insane. One of the main Daily Coast people, she says to me, well, we're about having informational hygiene and you can't believe anything that you read anymore because it's all fake news and it's all fabricated. And I was like, 
okay, you know, now, now I kind of see where you're coming from. You're saying that strategically, you're just going to start from the standpoint of there's no truth anywhere. And it's completely just who has the most followers to launch your bullshit messaging. And I just, I went back to my room that night. I called my husband and I, I must have walked back and forth in the parking lot yelling into my phone for 30 minutes. Like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> you know, where are they even coming from? This is ridiculous. It never occurred to me that this would be some kind of media strategy. Well, later on, I found out, and there's, there's another story I did, which is supercharged McCarthyism seeks to divide the left. And in that, I, I, I find that there's this one left influencer, Nomiki Konst, who has been engaging in some really offensive kind of McCarthyist behavior. And I looked into her background and I found out that she had been working with Marcos Malustis of the Daily Kos on a organization in LA that would teach celebrities how to be political messaging people. Hmm. So they were engaged in this project for at least two years prior to this entire thing at Death Valley. And, you know, one of the other things that I came away with, you know, like, I don't want to lose sight of the whole thing was a LARP. The whole thing was just, we were supposed to tell each other ghost stories and get really paranoid and go back with that feeling of paranoia. But during the strategy meetings, what they talked about, you know, when they got rubber to the road, what they wanted to do for strategy was boycott television shows. And I just sat out there in my little, you know, folding chair in the middle of Death Valley, looking at these people going, this is what you think the Russians want to spy on you for, that you're going to boycott a television show? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And just to elaborate on that lack of media strategy in exchange for the social media strategy, you do have a line in there where you say that they had made the point that they're not focused on mainstream media because they got that unlocked. Mainstream media is already on board, but they said that they wanted to write off alternative media as a lost cause because it is all Russia infiltrated, which I don't know. I read that as kind of saying, look, the alt media is not going to get fooled by our bullshit. We already own the mainstream media. So let's employ our celebrities who are taking that paycheck to say whatever we want them to say to cause that influence. And maybe that's not exactly the right read, but I like this where you wrote, our blogger turned consultant described a virtuous triangle whereby a celebrity launders messaging from influencers to their following who then amplify the message in a viral manner. To extend their reach, their funders were investing in software that mimics personas which would create the illusion of vast herds of Democrats all singing the same tune. Now, that's really important. And I think it's a relief to hear from someone who is actually in such a strategy session, because when you are in one bubble or another, you can 
see all the people with the same opinion and start to feel like, am I crazy here? But no, you're saying in black and white, this is a coordinated effort. And we already know we have ingrained biological tendencies, social tendencies to go with the herd. It's just something that exists. They've studied it before with the robofish experiments that you take a robotic fish into a school of fish and you kind of engineer it to look confident and look like a leader and real fish just start following along with it. There's this weird thing where we're all born into ignorance, where we have no memory of where we came from. We don't really know what life is about. And so we start looking around. And if somebody acts with confidence, we're like, hey, that guy knows what he's doing. I guess I'll do what that guy does. It's just something in our subconscious. So it seems like they weaponized that mechanism to make it seem like everyone agreed. And so you are hit with this enormous amount of peer pressure through social media that you know, you can't have any questions. You can't disagree with any of it because you'll be the only one and we're going to throw you out of the club. And I think it's really important to understand something else that was happening at the same time. And that is uh, on Thanksgiving Day of 2016, uh, I believe it was the Washington Post published a story about a new organization called Prop or Not. And this was on people's doorsteps on Thanksgiving Day, it was the story above the fold. So they wanted people to, to see this. It was all like anonymous sources. They wouldn't name anybody within the organization. But on that day in 2016, right after the election, they had already laid out a plan that they were fixing to implement that would shunt all traffic away from alternative media and would be working with big tech behind the scenes to make sure that alternative media wouldn't be included in any kind of search terms. And so that was, yes, that was mainly yes. Google there. So we need a Google files to, you know, like the Twitter files to see exactly how bad things went down in terms of what we aren't seeing now when we search the internet, because this put out a business, for instance, Truth Dig, which was a, an awesome publication that ran Chris Hedges stuff and Mr. Fish and, you know, did some pretty good syndicated, you know, pulled stuff from other places. It was a decent enough little publication, but they went under and like antiwar.com and, you know, a lot of libertarian websites that were doing media sharing information. They also experienced the same shunting. And, you know, so this is when we all kind of, and I think we forget about this. This is when we all kind of had to retool and start using social media and other avenues to boost our own shows and our messages and our publications and stuff. We couldn't rely on the algorithms of the search engines to do it because they already had that clamp down. Just unbelievable. And the thing about the personas, software that mimics personas, there was a story about Joe Biden using one of these operations out of India before the election. And it's just one of these things that, you know, here comes the story and it's absolutely jaw-dropping, mind-blowing stuff and nobody talks about it. 
I don't know. We, <laughs> I feel like the world we live in is a world of constant gaslighting now. And I don't think that that's healthy for people. I think that humans actually need some concrete reality to feel safe and secure and healthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And kind of like leading off of that, and just to segue out of the political a bit, you also tend to think about how magic applies to this stuff and the world at large. It seems like someone deep behind the curtain knows how this stuff works and has weaponized magic politically and socially. But you told me that you've used magic in all of your studies, that you see social theory as something that describes the magic of people, and that one of your goals is to show how magic describes our world and unlocks our world. I tend to agree, but elaborate on what you mean there. So think about the way the law works. Lawyers go to school to learn, you know, how to speak in court in a way that either gets what they want done or stops someone else from getting their thing done. When you stop someone else from getting their thing done, that's a binding spell. And when you get the thing done that you want, it's, you know, just a regular spell. We have set up our language systems in this world to, it mirrors the way that we've always thought about magic. Now, using laws and courts as an example is almost too easy. I think a better one that is more full and rich is when you think about language itself. So, you know, one of the things that that was beat into my head in school is we are limited as language users. Our world and our reality, what is included in it is if you don't have a word for it and it's not being spoken of, it doesn't exist. And by the way, that's what these people are doing with their censorship. They're unexisting. They're erasing all kinds of reality that ought to be there. And so when I say dark arts, that's what I mean. That's the kind of dark arts that they're participating in. And so one of the theorists that I spent a lot of time on in grad school was Habermas, Jürgen Habermas. And this was a time when postmodernism was uh, so ascendant that you had to take you had to take a position. You were either pro or anti. And at the time, I was kind of pro. I was like, okay, uh, postmodernism is bringing marginalized voices to the center. How could that go off the rails? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> now we know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now we know. And what blows my mind is that the way that we use language and the way, you know, Habermas had this whole theory of the way that language is an action in itself and creates action. Those ideas that, that were developed way high up in the academics, you know, in the 80s and 90s, they're applying that stuff right now to fifth generational warfare. I mean, talk about dark arts, you know, where, where the battleground is for our own brains, our own thoughts, yeah. our own emotions, our interior life. And they've created this battlefield where we don't even have access to people who share our thoughts anymore. And they're trying to make it, you know, a smaller and smaller space all the time. And so, you know, like all of these social theory guys that I studied in, in college, I thought one way about then, 
here it is 30 years later. And I'm like, oh, holy crap. It was the opposite. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought at all, but it is all of the social theory and all of the way that fighting this cognitive warfare is a kind of magic. People are doing symbolic domination when we engage in language, say like on Twitter, like in social media, we're creating life worlds that we either inhabit or we're saying that someone else's life world is debased or can't exist. And that to me is attempting to have real impact in the real world by just using words, by just using language, and just using it at the right time with the right people. And the really sad thing is, is that this is being used against us by forces that are so much larger than we are right now. We've really got to take some of this back, you know, so there's a, a little urgency in here too, that we have to bring back some of the discourse. We've got to bring back some of these spaces and we have to demand our, you know, cognitive dignity and demand that this cognitive warfare not be waged against us. I mean, like in a way, I don't care if they want to carry on cognitive warfare on the battlefield, you know, with people who are already combatants, but to, to militarize our entire life world and the spaces that we're trying to create for ourselves, our friends, our families, it's evil. It is a dark, dark art. And that's where all of this, you know, social theory eventually ended up. Because, like, nobody really needs to know about postmodernism. It's a little niche. It's a turn that philosophy and sociology took at a particular time. But what happened from that that is so important to people that they need to understand now is that every graduate program in sociology and philosophy had some kind of connection to this USAID and, you know, groups like, you know, all the intelligence agencies. There were funding projects in the social sciences to learn better how to control large groups of people. Yes. And postmodernism provided that opening, you know, if mm. because if we're going to say we don't know what truth is, then everything is up for grabs. And, yes. I, and, and I hate to throw this in, but the best example of this is the problem that people have right now with what is a woman. <laughs> and, and I think that, that when that got launched into the cognitive war, that's when, you know, a lot of people just kind of backed up and said, oh, wait a minute, what the heck? <laughs> you know, what the heck are you doing? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. That's, that's a weird one. And it's also thorny because people have a lot of opinions and emotions and they, these things are designed to play our emotions like a piano and to cause division. I want everyone to be comfortable with the life they're living. But according to some gay scholars that would probably know a thing or two about feeling a little weird in their body, they say that once people hit puberty, 90% of 
these issues are worked out and they do mm -hmm. feel comfortable in their body and 80% of those people end up being gay. So what they're kind of doing is taking kids before they have those realizations and saying, maybe you are a woman, maybe you should change your body. And that's obviously a boon for big pharma. According to some estimates I've seen from insurance companies, if you get a kid to transition, that can be $7 million over their lifetime <laughs> for the medical system. But it's just a, it's just a real messy thing. But one of my clients in the nineties, because I did a lot of healthcare marketing, one of my clients was a I won't share their name, but they were an equity group that would go and buy underperforming hospitals and try to suck money out of them. And they targeted hospitals doing gender reassignment. That's what they called it back really? then. And I thought at the time, I'm like, why would you be interested in that? Because that's a, that's a sticky, thorny, like, how am I going to market that? You know, that type of thing. I ended up leaving that particular group before I got too deep into it. But I went back and looked at their numbers recently and they stuck with it, which is just wild to me. Like, I wonder if they had a sense that, well, you know, these are all numbers guys who are just looking at money. So of course they did. They were just looking at the bottom line for sure. Yeah, that's an interesting insight. It just seems like they have manipulated and weaponized the good nature of liberals, the bleeding heart, as they say. And now they've made anything in the LGBTQ thing like a virtue if it's in your kids. And it's like they kind of they dangle them like charms like, oh, I got two gay kids and then I got the third one's trans. And it's like, what the hell is going on? Like, how about you just let your kids be kids mm -hmm. and let them sort out their own sexuality uh, before medically intervening or intervening at all? And it's just a big culture war right now over this thing. And it's just so confusing that, like, it, it doesn't seem like rocket science to let kids be kids. It shouldn't be. And the thing that I always come to and and I don't have a dog in this fight and I think that everybody should be treated with respect no matter what it is that they do I mean that's just freaking given but what I worry about when I look at the way that I grew up is you know, like I was a tomboy who you know I tried to surf <laughs> I rode bikes I hung out with guys all the time because they were more interesting than girls and gender wise I would have been somebody who would have been like, hey, are you sure you're you're not a guy? And I would be like, shut up. You know, <laughs> like I get enough of that as a girl who's kind of guy centric. You know, I don't appreciate the forces from outside saying that, you know, well, you don't fit the girl category anymore. You belong more in a boy category. We fought for so long, like feminists fought for so long to be super inclusive about the way that women could just be. So women could be mothers if they wanted to, and women could have careers if they wanted to, and women could be welders if they wanted to, and we could be in the military if we wanted to. We fought for that. And now what's happening is we have these new ideals of women that are in a way, in a way, it's men telling women how they should look and how they should act. And it's cartoonish, you know, yeah. with the 
overdone makeup and the, you know, what is it called with the lip syncing, the drag show drag stuff, show you stuff, know, yeah. it's a caricature of womanhood and I don't have a problem with it, you know, fine. But that caricature of, of womanhood needs to be understood in that frame right, that it's, right. that it's caricature and it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be something that, that you can be comfortable with, but it doesn't have to be something that, that you go towards. And oh my God, who in, when they're an adolescent, does anybody really have it figured out? Nobody gets what's happening to themselves when they're growing up. They're all questioning it. So. Yes. I agree. And we see these examples again online of the drag shows where they're prancing around with kids. And it's like, okay, I don't know how often that is really going on or if you're just highlighting some very rare examples to cause the emotional outrage and get the conversation going as they so often do. But it's like what you're seeing is a man dressed as a woman dancing with a little girl which is kind of promoting like, hey, you want to be like this over-sexualized stripper archetype when you grow up, right? It's all fun. That's what we're doing. Yep. And it's a little sick to me. I mean, it's really manipulative and sick. But again, I try not to get too sucked into it because I think that these examples flash across my screen to get me all worked up and to like, you know, get us talking about it as we are. Because it's a cognitive war, yeah. you know, and you're absolutely right. Like libs of TikTok is a good example that they go out and they find these like crazy instances of like elementary school teachers, you know, teaching uh, gender ideology. Yeah. And I can't imagine that that is super widespread. I don't have kids, so I don't know. I have dogs <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I understand what their pronouns are <laughs> well Wolf maybe maybe one of them but you know you can go back to everything that we just said about the way that language is used and the way that we're limited as language users and that we're in the middle of a cognitive war and all this fifth generation stuff is being used against us so that you know our emotions and our thoughts are you know coming into you know their contested territory yeah I think that we are being razzed most of the time with that stuff Absolutely, and that, yeah. and that it's really not that big of a deal. But I will say, I do know like what do three, four, five people my age who have kids who are either non-binary or transitioning mm. or thinking about it or questioning it. And I'm like, wow, I just never imagined it would be like, that you know that just seems like a lot yeah yeah i don't deny trans is a thing but it is super rare we have to admit that it is rare and this this giant explosion is socially manipulated but i guess part of me thinks like so i just interviewed someone fairly recently who had a lot of negative harsh things to say about the quote-unquote conspiracy theorist and i asked why and he's like well a conspiracy theorist attacked this church down the street from me or something. And it's like, okay, well, you can't extrapolate a whole group of people's thoughts and opinions about the actions of just one guy, but it is an aspect of the conspiracy community that we're always being lumped in as dangerous, that our thoughts are just one degree away from being unhinged and us going on some shooting rampage. Well, 
I have to fight against that because these are my people. This is my community that you're manipulating and weaponizing and trying to create this archetype for that isn't really there. And I feel like what I want to see from more people who are liberals who haven't given up that ground, I want them to really do more to root out this stuff. Because honestly, like I said earlier, the only thing worse than two parties is us only having one. And the 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 left is in real danger with all these operations since COVID to now everyone having a goddamn Ukraine flag to the transgender stuff. If some of these liberals don't start saying, you know, we have a line and this is the line and we want to go back to liberalism being about compassion, about economic policy, about just the ways things should be done, whatever, whatever. But like this culture war stuff, they are seriously about to to fizzle out into anyone in the middle just thinking this stuff is way too damn extreme. This was all, so I was in school in the late 80s and early 90s, and I remember working at the school newspaper. I had a column called Altered Consciousness, which is just so- I like it. It's just so sweet. But I remember my, my first thing that I wrote was about family values. And the culture war at the time was- family values and making the world safe for kids and, and all of this crap. This was like during Bush, HW, Poppy mm-hmm. Bush years. And we've not stopped doing the culture wars because the culture wars are very profitable for the donor class of both political parties. As long as people are at each other's throats and people in power are using these fifth generation warfare types of strategies and tactics against us to keep at each other, then we will never have any power. We will never get anything done for ourselves. And it just keeps being this argument about imagining that someone has been slighted and then the other person saying, well, this is what I actually meant. And people just talk past each other. Back when I was in school, that was called political correctness. And it was huge. Like people built their entire careers. Like Dinesh D'Souza built his entire career from Dartmouth on picking on what he called political correctness, which is now kind of cancel culture. And it won't go away until we realize that it is a lever that they're using to make us do what they want us to do. It takes our power away from us. Absolutely. I totally agree. And as someone who grew up in conservative Missouri as a liberal and then moved to liberal California and sort of became a conservative, I'm just very used to having conversations with people who don't agree and trying to find some common ground in the middle. And as you said earlier, that's kind of lost. I remember growing up watching mainstream media and there were a lot of these debate shows and it was exciting and dramatic and I kind of got into it. And now that's just all gone. They've just removed that other person. And now it's all monologuing and you have your different channels you can go to. And without that other counterpoint, we're in trouble. Yeah. And it's boring, too. I'll tell you, I can't have cable news on in the house. I have to turn it off. On the other side of that, you know, what's really cool is that 
Apple TV and, you know, new ways that we're using that kind of visual media allows me to put on my YouTube stuff and I can watch Jimmy Dore in the evening when he's on or Kim Iverson or, you know, earlier today I was watching videos on Pythagoras, you know, just whatever. (laughs) So you can be more selective and you can be more directed in what you take in. And I think that's what we ought to be doing individually in order to kind of put up a fence and say, I'm not going to let you make my emotional life your battleground. My emotional life is mine. And I don't want anybody coming into it and telling me what I'm going to be mad about today. Um, Because I got plenty to be mad about anyway. (laughs) And I'd rather not be mad. Yes, yes. Well said. Well, hey, this has been really, really awesome. We're about at the end of the road. I am just curious if there are other pieces that you have planned in your head that you're about to write or any other aspects that you plan on putting your journalistic attention to next. Yeah, I am working on pulling pretty much what we just did in our discussion. I want to pull together the article that I wrote back about the glamping, which is, you know, what is the date on that now? It's been a while. And I want to make all of this make sense because I feel like I have in my notes, I've got this pulled together in a way that that would make sense to most people. So that's one thing that I want to do is kind of like, you know, do an overview of all of this state crimes against democracy stuff. I also, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm being somewhat of a whistleblower about the bullshit on the left, you know, (laughs) there's just... There's just a lot of it, and it's so easy to see. It is so easy to pinpoint. It's just go to where the money is and look at how the money's being spent, and it's all stupid, and it's all halfway crooked, and it's all halfway buying votes, and it's just got to stop because it's toxic, and it's ruining politics. It's ruining the left. Oh, and I have another piece that I'm working on is that the left, I think, committed suicide a few years ago, and we just haven't recognized it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is something, you know, before we go, let me slide in this question I was going to just leave alone because we did touch on it. But how would someone who feels more liberal than conservative at heart reclaim what it means to be a true liberal? Because right now huh. it tends to mean you support the COVID up. You have disdain for the unvaxxed. You have a Ukrainian flag in your profile. You have your hand out ready for those carbon credits. And you think the idea that kids should at least be 18 before they alter their bodies medically is bigoted hate speech. Well, how do you unravel all that? Or did the left just kill itself off? How do we reclaim that ground if someone wanted to? I think that principles are fairly easy for people to understand, you know, and whenever you have these questions, you got to go back to the principles. Like, I'm for more investment in our infrastructure. I'm for more investment in our people. I'm for people being treated fairly and equitably. And justice is important to me. So we've got these principles and you want to be able to see them play out and presented, implemented and executed in a way that is meaningful. And so what I would tell people is that no matter what happens, you've always got those core principles 
justice, the equity or equality, however you want. I think equity and equality are really messed up lately. And, you know, you overlay that on what's going on and ask yourself, does this line up with my principles or is this something I can ignore? Like, I think that more people could just ignore a lot of stuff, like don't really even need to, like, that's re so the reason why I haven't really gotten very involved in a lot of the gender stuff or in a lot of race stuff, because I don't think I have anything that I can offer. It's not about me. And I think that more power to you. I'm allied with people who are struggling with whatever it is and or having victory over what it is. Yeah, right on. But, you know, I would have no business talking about, you know, any race and, and gender stuff. It just doesn't make any sense. But I want to be able to feel like that I can talk about feminism without getting some. We got to make room for both. We got to have room for people to have feminism and for people to have gender ideology and, you know, blah, 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 and all of that to work. You know, maybe just, maybe just people be nicer to each other. That would be one thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you're no, right. I, I, I'm kidding, but I do think this was really useful. And I just think about little things you said that I'm like, man, that's going to be triggering to a certain type of person. And I think that sadly the people that would benefit most from like a, a nuanced conversation between two people who really are trying to reclaim the old ground of how people used to discuss things, they're, they're going to shut off because, you know, it's, it's weird how liberals are always considered such snowflakes and so triggered, but yet, you know, you have a conservative who hears, some key phrase and they're like, well, that person's lost. Turn that off. I mean, we're all siloed, but I hope that some people are like, yeah, it's just a conversation about how things seem to be going. And, and really the focus is this template that is applied that we're trying to kind of provide an anecdote for. We're trying to, to show people a, a better way to, to talk about really polarized things and just a little bit of a return to common sense and like, both conservatives and liberals used to have that common sense that just seems to have been removed from society. Yep. And understand when you're being used yeah, because yeah. we are being used, you know, 90% of the time on social media. Mm -hmm. And we might not get it right a hundred percent of the time, but if you come at it with the attitude that there is a template in play and psychological operations are real, then most of the time I think you can figure it out. But you know, no one's perfect 100% of the time. And I think we also got to get away from expecting everyone who talks on a podcast host or guest to check every single box that you have in your own head. We're talking to a lot of people. It's just not possible. So have a little bit of grace for people. For real. Uh, forbearance, you know, uh, mm -hmm. grace and forbearance are two principles I'd like to see practiced a little more. Mm hmm. Amen. Well, you got a ton of great insights on a lot of different things. And we're talking to someone who's been invited to the meetings. You use the whistleblower term. I was going to say that too, because it is kind of like, you know, I keep thinking of the horror movie thing of, Hey, the, the murderer is calling from inside the house, right? Like, you know, you've been behind the curtain and you're trying to let us know. So, you know, I appreciate that. And I guess give the people your links and any other info you want them to have before I cut you loose. 
So the best places to catch me are Brooke Hines at substack.com. And so that's B-R-O-O-K-H-I-N as in Nancy E-S. And on Twitter, I'm Nashville underscore Brooke. But you can find me, of course, at Brooke Hines. Just do that search. And yeah, so I write at the Substack and I'm fixing to relaunch Hindsight which will be a video audio thing. So I'm putting out mostly audio, but using video for social media. Mm-hmm. And that's the big thing. And that's going to be less politics, more groovy, fun stuff. Nice. Well, I definitely like the rebrand. I think that's a great term. I love play on words kind of stuff. And I think that's going to be great. But yeah, thanks again. I'll see you in Florida and <laughs> keep doing what you do and take care. Awesome. You too. All right, so there we have it. I would say this one is interesting for a bunch of different reasons. When I found Brooke's work, I thought she had a bold, fierce writing style that clearly stated, no, there is no COVID amnesty. You fucked us, and we're not looking to just gloss over it and forgive. And that should be her tone, because she faced a very serious injury from just one shot of this stuff. And that was also a compelling reason to have her on, because we've had a few guests who've mentioned injured family and friends, but I have not interviewed a person on the show that has had a first-hand mRNA injury, and I wanted to. But in conversation, she does seem a bit more laissez-faire about the situation than she did in her writing. Maybe she just has a sense of humor about it, and kind of a what's done is done, gotta live with it attitude which I can understand. I'm deaf in one ear. No use trying to be a victim about it. So I appreciate that attitude, but I expected her to be a bit more unforgiving or angry at the people who pushed this shit on us or pushed it on her. I mean, she's the one with the injury. So I don't know, but when you're engaging in an interview, people can feel all sorts of ways and maybe want to err on the side of caution or whatever. But I'm mad for her. As she said, her issues are ongoing. Maybe they always will be. And COVID is a cold. (laughs) So like I said to her, it's really about reverse engineering the need for this, which I don't think is there. But there were some good insights about the vaccine injury shaming that goes on on the left and what she had to endure. It just adds insult to injury, doesn't it? I can't even be honest. So I found all that interesting, and I was compelled by hearing her recount her experiences with it, and I hope she does find a way to put her injury in the rearview mirror for good with no lasting effects. But the main point of this one became the progressive strategy meeting she attended in the desert, the coerced consensus through social media manipulation, and what she was willing to call state crimes against democracy. And I also liked that she had some knowledge and interest in the magical worldview, which added some flavor to a show that could easily just seem very dense with inside baseball political strategy. I think it would be way better for her to rebrand under hindsight rather than anything that uses the term progressive or left. Because funny enough, she checks a lot of the same boxes as some of our most conservative guests. Whether it's the transgender campaign going on, the war in Ukraine, maybe even the way climate change is being used. I don't remember if we really got into that one. But if you heard of the plan for the 15-minute cities, 
It is the latest application of the, well, we got to do something mindset. And sure, a city where everything is within 15 minutes sounds great, but not all services and amenities and grocery stores are created equal, and I want to go where I want to go. What's crazy is they're testing all of this in Oxford, and in the fine print, it states that people who go outside of their 15-minute neighborhood will face a 70-pound fine. <laughs> yeah, free-range prisons indeed. Coming to a city near you. But I thought there was a lot to like in this interview, lots of food for thought, and just interesting to hear a person who came from the left break with them on so many of the individual issues. I've said before, I thought I was a liberal in college, and the values I had then are kind of still the same, mainly anti-war and anti-censorship. Those two, obviously, still there. But what the left associates itself with is just different now. And my assessment is that that probably happens every generation or so, and it's best to just be an independent, and then you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but I think it was her break on the trans topic that surprised me most. I don't know why exactly. It is a very highly charged and thorny topic, and I didn't even expect it to come up. And we really haven't done a show going into the trans thing very much. You get comments here and there. I don't know that it needs a full two-hour breakdown, to be honest with you. To me, the issues are pretty obvious and kind of irrelevant to my life. But we are in strange times where if we don't want kids to go through surgeries, converting their sexual organs, or take puberty blockers, then we're made to feel like bigots. If we don't want drag queens in the classroom, same thing. But hey, drag queens don't dress like Mrs. Doubtfire. They dress like strippers. Strippers shouldn't be in the classroom, male, female, or trans. I know we have some trans listeners who have said something anytime this issue comes up. I respect your opinion. I want everyone to feel comfortable in their own body. But you're crazy if you think it's okay to take a scalpel to kids' crotches before they're even old enough to decide on a tattoo. And I don't really feel the need to explain myself any more than that, really. The people who already get it don't need to be told, and the people who need to be told won't listen. So just take care of your own family and wish everyone luck in the never-ending struggle to feel good about yourself. <laughs> so my hope is that we just do a better job overall of talking to each other and finding common ground and getting off of Team Red or Team Blue. There's a lot of talk out there about a new civil war or a divorce for the country, and I don't really want that. I want people to stop pushing agendas on us, and I want more people to see through some of this stuff, but we can't practically divorce. Sure, there are more red states and more blue states, but the reality is that we're very intertwined with conservatives and liberals in all of the same neighborhoods. It's not as simple as drawing lines and making new borders. That should be obvious too, but... We covered a lot of ground. Hopefully you found some of it insightful. I do consider her a whistleblower of sorts. Maybe you could say a lot of this was just confirming something you already know, but confirmation has value. After the first hour, we got into even more stuff for Plus members, like the murder of Seth Rich, Julian Assange, and some recent updates. We talked more about that template of engineered irrationality from COVID to Ukraine. 
and that phrase, the Nazis aren't Nazis when there are Nazis. <laughs> Her take on that was very in line with someone like Helen of Destroy. We also talked about Brooke's advice as a communication strategist and how to help our loved ones to stop getting played on these crucial issues. I like that phrase, there are people who see, there are people who see when shown, and there are people who refuse to see. And you've got a life to live too, so when you've shown the people that you care about what they need to see, if they still refuse, then I guess you got to move on. Either take them as they are or form a new network, I guess. But we also talked about animal sightings as signs and the magical language of nature and the subconscious. COVID as an egregore and how it should be handled from that perspective and a couple other things. Sign up for Plus if you want more THC. Lots of good episodes lately. Eight bucks a month. Seven day free trial to start you off. It's the best deal in conspiracy podcasting, but in higher side news, the outline auction is still going on, but I wanted to get rid of the pre-roll notice. Five times in a row is plenty. People who want a signed outline know where to get one, and I know there are a ton of requests for specific outlines of actual individual shows, but I don't think I'm going to be putting any more up before the big move. It's something I'll do again in a couple of years, I guess. But thanks for being a part of it. If you were, there's still a few more days to put bids out if you're interested. Now let's dive into the meetup calendar before we get out of here. New stuff added all the time. Next on deck is a meetup in Sedona, Arizona on March 4th. One in Scottsville, New York on March 10th. One in Spooner, Wisconsin, March 11th. Vancouver Island Beach, March 11th as well, and also March 11th, Scottsdale, Arizona. March 18th, Harrisburg, Oregon. March 22nd, Arroyo Seco. And March 23rd, the Antler Hunt Campout on Pot Mountain in northern New Mexico. Seems we already have one for June and one for August, but we'll get there. Throw on anything you want, you know, find one that's already on the calendar, or just make your own. It's a fun way to spend an evening, right? But hey, that's the show. Big thanks to Brooke for sharing her insights with us and many well wishes that the effects of the jab become a thing of the past for her. Check out her Substack or Twitter if you want to reach out or read more of her work. Thanks for listening, and take care of you and yours. I've done my part. Your move, neoliberal glampers, persona-mimicking software engineers, and crafters of the virtuous triangle template. Your fucking move. Sweet dreams to the elite. We're calling them out on THC. Uncovering secrets and conspiracies. Everybody's looking for something. Some of them want to use you. Some of them want to get used by you. Some of them want to abuse you. Some of them want to be a